Before we get into the uh, teaching for today, I want to give you just a, a brief uh, church update. Um, over the last uh, little while, Alyssa and I have been trying to figure out how we can take some time, really kind of for over a year now, I've been trying to figure out how we can take some time, um, not only to enjoy a week of vacation, but really kind of spend some time as a family, as a couple, as co-pastors uh, who've uh, uh, been working on, uh, you know, three years ago or uh uh, really four years I began working on a church plant, really kind of take some time for uh, personal development and to, uh, to strengthen our marriage. So we had originally planned actually to do this last December, and it didn't work out for a number of reasons. So in January, we formed a board uh, for our church, and with that leadership structure in place and with the accountability that uh, comes with that, uh, we finally got some dates on the calendar, and we've been sort of working towards this. Uh, and uh, so in collaboration with our board and staff and volunteers, Liz and I are going to be taking July off. Uh, a week of this or so will be just typical vacation, but the rest of it's going to be some structured time uh, to really strengthen our marriage, uh, our working relationship together, even our uh, personal spiritual lives. So in a lot of ways, you can think of it kind of like as a mini sabbatical, just a really short sabbatical uh, for the month of July. There's obviously a lot of people who are stepping up to help this make make this happen. In fact, I was going to have a, and I, I forgot this till this moment. I was going to have it so we could show the the production team here. We won't put you on the spot though, guys. But we got a lot of volunteers on Sunday morning, and, and individuals are going to be sharing on Sunday. Uh, um, uh, Baron will be preaching, and uh, uh, we're going to be pre-recording a few things, so you might even see me on a Sunday, uh, so to speak, which will be funny. Uh, uh, but our staff, volunteers, production team, board, all of this are coming together to make this happen, and we're meaningless are just. Uh, really grateful uh, for that. Um, and, and really, as we kind of think about where we're headed, and, and there's really never a good time to take extended period off to kind of do that personal retreat, to be able to spend time in prayer and personal reflection. But it's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. It's something our denomination encourages. Um, and uh, there's never a good time. But really, July ended up being, I think, a good time. You know, um, with COVID cases on the rise and our space here at Backspace being really limited in size, the truth is, is we, we don't know exactly how we're going to uh, open back up. And I know a few churches are opening back up. And I know a few churches that have sort of opened back up and are, are maybe regretting that decision, given uh, what's happening uh, with the spike in cases. So with this break, I know that afterwards, we're going to be able to be refreshed and energized to hit the run, the ground running in August and even into this fall with some new energy, uh, new vision, and I think God's going to open up some doors for some really amazing things for our church. And, and I really am excited for what God's going to do, what God is already doing, what God has done, and what God's going to do uh, in this fall. So a lot of people um, have kind of asked or suggested, you know, how can we be praying for us and our church during this time? And there's a couple of things as we Think about me and Alyssa's time off, but also where we're headed and what it's going to look like on the other side of all of this. 
um, there's a couple things I'd invite you to be in prayer about. And if you have a way to take some notes, I encourage you to write this down. If you don't have a way to take notes, I will include a version of this in our church email that'll go out this week. But first, I'd encourage you that uh, pray that this time is enriching for Alyssa and I, both as a couple, um, which is really important for us, and as individuals that we return refreshed and strengthened and ready to lead, um, you know, into a new chapter, into a new season of a church plant for so many reasons, not, not only because of COVID um, uh, and, and uh, the work we're doing around addressing racism. I mean, there's a lot of things that are in flux and changing. Our paradigm as a world is kind of shifting. But even more so, like we're a church that started three years ago, and we're moving into a new season of ministry. We have a board now. We were set up, I think, to be sustainable. These are things that we hoped and dreamed for when we started all of this, and we're now moving into that phase. So we just pray that this time is enriching for us, that we can hear the voice of God and experience new life as we kind of move towards a new season of ministry together. I just encourage you to pray that God open doors for us as a church to gather together in a way that is both safe and authentic. Um, we're looking at ideas around meeting in smaller groups in people's homes or in someone's backyard, experiencing live uh, live stream or, or other ways of doing church. And we're, we're considering, you know, what does it look like to gather in a location that allows us to gather? Um, maybe this space isn't that, but can we do stuff outside? Or maybe uh, at a different time of the week, we could gather in a, a larger space that might be available. And so we're wrestling with that. We're praying about that. And I encourage you to join us in praying about that, what it looks like for us to gather again um, uh, in the future, this, this later in the summer and fall. I also want to encourage you to pray for those in our community who feel especially home, alone or isolated during this time. We always wanted this to be a place, um, uh, a community where we support one another. I have to say me and Alyssa feel deeply supported by our community and by you, um, and I know many others feel supported, but I feel like it's never been more difficult for us as a church to be supportive of one another. Because we don't have those natural touch points. We're not running into people on Sunday or we're not running into them at small group. It's never been more difficult to live into that call that we have to invest in each other's lives. So I encourage you to pray, not only pray for those who, people who might feel especially alone or vulnerable during this time, but to step out and take action, <laughs> live your prayer out by reaching out to someone uh, this month and, and, and in the future. But just make a point to reach out to somebody that maybe you haven't talked to who you know uh, is a part of our community. The last thing I invite you to pray for is our justice ministries, our, our missional ministries, uh, Little Bob's Free Store, uh, our mental health fund, uh, immigrate, uh, my, our immigrant relief fund, and, and even now we're beginning some ground, laying some groundwork around racial justice. And all of these have ramped up uh, during this season and uh, um, have become in some ways our primary method of being the church during this time. Uh, so I just ask that you pray that God continues to bless this work, that God opens the doors and really protects those who are engaged in this important work. So I'm excited to see where we find ourselves uh, in the coming months, and I'm humbled to walk with you all during this time. So before we get into the teaching, I just invite you to pray with me. God, we give you thanks. Lord, as we gather as a community in a variety of ways, as we reach out to one another, as we serve at Little Bottoms or give towards uh, the work that's happening in our justice ministries, um, I ask that you would meet us and that you would bless us and that you would sustain us, that you would, um, even today, as we open your word, that you would speak to us. That even as I'm speaking, that I might receive that, that I'm merely a conduit of your grace, and that regardless of what I say or where we find ourselves, that your presence becomes very uh, 
very evident and we can know you and experience you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are uh, week four of our Genesis series and we have made it to chapter three. So one of my great regrets on this series is we are out of sync. <laughs> week four, chapter three. My OCD is going crazy around that. Uh, there's no way around it though. Uh, we'll get out of sync even more as we move forward. Uh, but I mentioned recently uh, that I have this love for writing and how I've been working on a novel, uh, shared it with a few friends. And that work is really... Uh, my, the love of storytelling is really kind of the heart of my love of being a pastor, my love of writing, my love of preaching is kind of all rooted in this love of story. And, and here's what I know about a really good story. Stories are all about conflict or what some writers call trouble. A story isn't good unless there's good trouble. And every story or most stories have a moment in the story somewhere near the beginning where trouble becomes unavoidable. Uh, where the main character is thrust into trouble, pushed into conflict. It's, it's called the inciting incident. And, and, and friends, right here in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the original inciting incident of all inciting incidents. In our faith, our faith that reaches back all the way to Judaism, and, and Judaism which reaches back thousands of years, this story at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of beginnings, known as Genesis, this story, chapter 3, is the inciting incident of inciting. It's the original trouble. It's the original conflict, or what we call in theological terms, the original sin, the fall. So before we get into that, I want to stop and reflect on trouble, or on conflict, on sin. Scripture says it like this in the New Testament, written many years later, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and me both. We have fallen. We've all tripped up. We've all made mistakes. We might not want to think about that. We might not want to reflect on that. But it's true nonetheless. And we have. We've messed up. And there's some things in our life. And, and today I want us to pause and think about our mistakes. I know it's a hard thing. And, and for some, some people it can even trigger anxiety or a myriad of other feelings. But trust me, I think we're headed somewhere that's worth going. So you don't have to think about a specific time that you've messed up. Just consider the feeling you get when you really mess up. Just bringing it up, uh, I get that, that feeling. <laughs> you know, I can't be the only one. I feel a little anxious. There's this element of fear, you know, fear that if you knew about me, what I know about me, you might not want me to be your pastor, you know? If you knew my failures the way I know my failures, whoo, there's regret even. There's a guilt. I feel bad. I think of friends that I've had, friends that I've let down, things that I've done to hurt people, often in my defense, <laughs> unintentionally, right? In my defense, which is defensiveness. That's another, another feeling I have when mistakes are brought up. But I think about those things, that I've, how I've hurt people, the people that I love. And, and some of those, uh, 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 because of that, those, those people aren't in my life anymore, you know? They don't trust me, and I regret that. It makes me sad. I can imagine the people I failed, you know, the times when I did something wrong and I knew it was wrong, when I betrayed someone's trust. If I was to imagine myself in that situation again, it's a hard thing to imagine. That, that moment after a big 
fall, a big fail, a big collapse. That moment I betrayed someone and they looked at me, you know, they lock eyes with me. The moment after I betrayed someone and they look at me, they lock eyes with me and they had the, imagine if they had the courage to face and speak to me, what would they say? Here's my best guess. Maybe their response would be disappointment. How could you? Maybe someone said that to you. Joe, why would you do that? There's just that feeling that you've disappointed someone. Maybe it's anger. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Maybe someone said that to you. Maybe it's sadness, but they don't say anything. Maybe they just cry. How would you respond? Someone has betrayed your trust. Someone has done the opposite of what you have asked them to do, and they've done it in a way that breaks your heart. How would you respond? I want you to hold on to that question. It's a hard question. It's meant to be a hard question. It's meant to make us feel a little heavy. So just hold on to it. Don't run from it. Keep it there. Um, just keep it in the space for, somewhere, uh, for now. We're going we're gonna to go somewhere with it. With that, let's look at the original trouble what theologians call the original sin. It's Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. I want to pause there for a second. We, we just uh, read two creation accounts over the last couple of weeks, two stories of God making the world, and now we're introduced into a specific creature, a snake, and this snake is said to be crafty. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that it doesn't mean the snake is good at arts and crafts, stupid joke, but we're not talking about a snake with an entire room filled with paper and glue, and that's not what we're talking about. The Hebrew word here for crafty means clever. In fact, it can mean sensible or shrewd. We often think of this snake as evil. Snake's not pictured as being evil. It's pictured as being clever, as being crafty, as being... We're introduced into this character. This character, the snake, enters into the story, and this character, the snake, is said to have think about things differently. The snake thinks about things differently. And the point of this introduction of this new character is simple. The source of trouble that comes into the biblical story is introduced by this crafty, otherwise unknown character. This crafty, clever snake says to this woman in the garden, this is what the snake says. He said to the, the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that really what God said? If you ever break someone's trust, it'll most likely start with a question as simple as this. It's not that wrong, is it? It's not that big of a deal. That's not really what it means. It's the slippery slope of immorality. Most big failures in your life are going to be built on years of small compromises. I want to say that again. Most big failures in your life are going to be built on years of small compromises. Simple little compromises, clever little questions, clever ways of reframing something. You're like, yeah, but, but in this situation, it's okay. That's what the snake's trying to do. Just small little compromise that'll lead to other compromises that'll lead to other compromises. And this is how the woman responds. Verse 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. We're given this picture of the world where humans, both male and female, are in relationship with God. And, and they, they have this understanding 
there's boundaries. And that's the big idea here. Don't get hung up on the fact that it was a tree or a fruit or whatever. It's not that there were some things evil and other things good. Eating fruit was good. 100% good. It was the whole point of creation. Enjoy, God says, enjoy the things that I've created. But, it was meant to be enjoyed, but, and it's a big but, it's good in order for it to remain good, eating fruit, for example, or anything that's good, it has to have boundaries. That's the picture we're given is this idea that good things have to be, have boundaries in order to remain good. So take, for example, ice cream. I love ice cream. When I eat too much ice cream or I eat too much ice cream over a long period of time, not good anymore. Same with beer. I enjoy beer. I can't enjoy beer if I have too much of it, especially if I find it having power over me. Too much beer, not a good thing. Sex. I'm a big fan of sex. I am. Not a good thing if it's out of context. Not a good thing if there aren't boundaries. If I'm just sleeping with anybody I know, all of a sudden it can become a very, very hurtful thing. In fact, I would argue uh, philosophically that the greater potential something has to be good, the greater potential it can be manipulated if boundaries are crossed in order to hurt, hurt people. You know, worst case scenario with, with ice cream, you know, I eat too much of that, I'm, I'm going to hurt myself and there's, you know, diabetes, I got a concern and, you know, like these are bad things, but, but like sex is potential to be really good, if that's taken out of context, it's, it's, it's the most heinous crime. And we all agree, like, it's, it's the worst. So anything that's good has to have boundaries, and when those boundaries are crossed, it could become very uh, hurtful, not only to myself, to other people. And that's the idea of the trees, is you can enjoy, eat all the fruit you want, but there's boundaries, and there's a certain limit, and you can go so far. And, um, uh, and so that's what we're told. Don't eat from the tree. Eating from the tree will lead to death. And, and, and this is so important that this idea of boundaries is so important that, it, that if you break it, it'll, it'll ruin everything. It'll lead to death. The snake, though, paints a different picture. Verse 4, the snake responds. The snake says, you will, certainly, you, will, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, we aren't told the snake is evil. We're told the snake is clever. And here's, the, here's an interesting part of the story. What the snake says is kind of technically true. The snake's not entirely lying here. And we see a similar character in Satan when Satan visits Jesus in the wilderness. Satan quotes scripture when Satan talks to Jesus. Like there's an element of truth to what Satan says. There's an element of truth to what the snake is saying. He's not lying. And here's the thing that you have to remember is that not everything that is true or feels true is helpful. Not everything that is true is, is, is necessarily being used in the right context. Just because a snake says something that might be technically true given the right perspective didn't mean that it was helpful didn't mean it was helpful for them, and it didn't mean that God was lying either, even though that's the suggestion the snake is trying to suggest. What God says and what the snakes say might be sort of both true, but that's what makes the story so complex. God tells them, if you eat, death will enter this story. And they assume that it means that if they eat, you know, like the implication is that if I eat this one particular tree, it'll poison me and I will die. And that's, that's not how the story plays out. The snake leverages this. The snake tells them, you won't die right away. In fact, you'll end up being like God. You'll know what God knows. You'll be even more powerful if you eat this. Here's the thing. Adam and Eve don't die right away from this single act. That much the snake had right. But here's what does happen. Death enters 
their story. And there's a ripple effect. This decision will carry us to chapter 4, which we're going to look at in greater detail next, next week. And in chapter 4, their son, Cain and Abel, their sons, Cain and Abel, end up in conflict with one another, and their oldest son kills their youngest son. In less than one chapter, death is introduced into the world in a very real way. And it wouldn't be at the hand of God like they might assume, like God was angry at them and smite them and killed them. No, it would be at the hand of one of their sons against another of their sons. It would be at the hand of their older sibling, their older son. The oldest child, their firstborn, would kill his brother. Now I wonder, if the snake had told them that, that their choice here might ripple out and lead to a series of compromises that would be passed down to their children and lead to things like hatred and jealousy and anger and fear and insecurity and shame. So much shame piled on top of each other that their firstborn would be unable to deal with all of this that they somehow inherited or learned from their parents. The shame and the disappointment and the jealousy that he has of his brother and the anger and the guilt. So much so that he kills his younger brother. If, if Adam and Eve had known that's where the story was headed, I don't know, they probably would have passed on the fruit. They aren't told that. The snake says, oh, you won't die. And they think, oh, okay, then why worry about it? Not everything that is true is helpful, uh, not unless you know the bigger story. So here's what happens. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So they ate it for three reasons. Uh, it was good for food, tasted good. It looked good. It's pleasing to the eye, and it would make them wise, you know, make them more like God. And they kind of want that power as part of their human experience. So three temptations in one, taste, sight, and self-image. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 summarizes this, these three temptations in one very simple verse, and it says this, John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The lust of the flesh, it makes me feel good. The lust of the eyes, it looks good. And the pride of life. This doesn't capture the entirety of sin or temptation or the motivations we have to mess up, but it, it captures some of the big buckets. I do something because it feels good, because it looks good, it makes me look good, or because I want to become better. I want to be more. I want to be more like God. I want to be more beautiful. I want to be more powerful. I want to have more wealth, you know, this desire, this pride of life. And first, John says that it's, it's, it doesn't come from God. That's important. It comes from the world. This outside influence is, is, is pervading us and moving us. Just like the snake shows up in the story and kind of nudges them. They make the mistakes. We'll get to that in a second. They're the ones who make, they're accountable for the mistakes they make. But there's this outside influencer that kind of nudges them in that direction. So here's what happens. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There's this moment in the, in the sort of origin of humanity where Adam and Eve um, become self-aware. Naked here is meant to represent shame. We know that it represents shame because this chapter, uh, the chapter before this one ends by saying in Genesis 2, verse 25, Genesis 2, 25, so right before chapter 3, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we've already been told that nakedness and shame have this connection, this relationship with one another. There was a moment in the biblical story where male and female were naked and they were totally fine with it. Didn't think anything of it. 
And then all of a sudden, they recognize their nakedness, which means they look at themselves and they don't like what they see. We can relate to this awkwardly. They don't like what they see, so they want to cover it up. And so, chapter 2, they're naked and unafraid, but now they, they see their nakedness, they're ashamed of it. And they want to cover up, they want to hide. And this has been the human experience ever since. When I, when I, just bigger than even just the, the idea of nakedness, but when I mess up, when I break someone's trust, when I fail big, I want to hide. I want to run away. It's almost fight or flight. And, and I either want to hide or I want to argue and defend myself. It's that fight or flight syndrome. But in both, the root of it is simple. I see myself and I don't like what I see. I feel naked. I'm ashamed. And here's what they do. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hid. Not only from themselves. That's, that's the previous verse. They tried to get clothes. They were hiding from themselves, from each other. But they hid from God. Of course they did. They don't want to face God. As far as they know, God's going to strike them down. He promised that they would die if they ate it. They, they have to be sort of terrified. And that God has to be, they're going to assume that God is angry, that God is going to yell at them, that God's going to hate them, that God's going to be disappointed, that God's going to be sad. And they hide. Verse 9, here's what happens. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's the first question God asks in, in the scripture text. Where are you? We could sit there for a while. We won't. But verse 10, the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, because I was ashamed, because I was embarrassed. There's a, there's a difference here. I, I want to spend a few moments with this. I've talked about this before, so you, and you might have read it on your own. Brene Brown does some work around this. But there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is what you feel when you recognize that you've done something wrong. You did something wrong, and you own that fact, and you recognize that you are guilty. Guilt is what you feel when you've done something wrong. Shame is what you feel when you look at yourself and you think, I am wrong. That there's something wrong with me. That regardless of what you've done or don't do, there's something wrong with me. That, that you look at yourself and, and the behavior and you think that maybe even the behavior that I've done is a sign of something deeper problem with me. That I'm the problem. So guilt is feeling bad about your behavior. Shame is feeling bad about yourself. So we have two things at play here. With the, the story of Adam and Eve, we have two things at play. First one is, who are they? Who are, who are they really? What is their identity? And where do they find their identity? And are they going to be able to find their identity in the image of God who they were created? But then you have the other question of what they have done. And we so consistently weave those together. We are convinced, people, that I am what I do. That's not the biblical story. What I do matters. I will be held accountable for what I do. There are consequences for what I do. But ultimately what I do does not define who I am or that intrinsic worth. Who they are, they're created in the image of God. Period, hard stop. What they've done, they've messed up, they've failed, they've sinned. So two things, what they have done and how it impacts who they are. Guilt versus shame. And there's really only one character who can help decide how to deal with that, and that's God. And how God responds here, I think, is so significant. How does God respond with the fact that they clearly don't like who they are and God clearly doesn't like what they've done? How does God respond? 
Here's how God responds in verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Two questions. God asks them two questions. Who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to? Two questions. The first one has to do with who they are. Their shame, right? We know nakedness is tied to shame. Their shame. The second one has to do with what they've done. Did they break God's commandment? He asked them both. And, and, and I could spend time on both. I'm going to spend time on the first one because plenty of sermons have been done on the second one, this idea that they broke the law and there's consequences and the fall and all of that. You can you Google a thousand sermons on that. I want to spend time on that first question. I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> the, the, I couldn't stop thinking about it. God's second question in the biblical story, first is, where are you? And once he finds him, he says, who told you that you were naked? In other words, who convinced you that there was something wrong with you? We know how it happened. We just read the story. They, they make a series of bad decisions. Not only guilt, but then shame enters the story. But God asks him, who told you that you were naked? There's something beautiful about confession. The thing I love about confession is I name what I've done wrong. And by naming what I've done wrong... I'm also in an indirect way naming that that doesn't have to be who I am. That through the power of God and the standing life of the Holy Spirit and Jesus and, and the fact that God can make all things new, that I can be made new. Confession it allows that to happen. I can separate what I've done with, with who God is making me. But I love this question and I couldn't get it out of my head. Who told you that you were naked? One of the hardest things you will ever have to do in your life is that kind of question. You'll have to answer that question. This is the work that often happens with therapists or counselors. It's a, it's, it goes, this is a question that goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. This is a question that if you want to live the healthiest life you can live, you've got to go all the way back to your beginning. At what point in your life did you look at yourself, see yourself, kind of came to a place of self-awareness, and also thought, I don't like what I see? Very few people will go through life not feeling that at some point. And, Jesus, and God asks it in a very specific, God asks who? In the following verses, uh, the, the man blames the wife, uh, the wife blames the snake, it eventually lands with the snake, and God holds the snake accountable. And then the man and the woman are held accountable too for what they do. But I love the fact that the snake is held accountable. God asks the question of who? And I think that's a hard question we need to wrestle with. When you go back and you think about the mistakes you've made or the shame that you feel, or the ways in which you've... Um, uh, uh, looked at yourself and you said, I don't like what I see. The question you have to wrestle with is, who gave you that idea? And most likely, it's probably someone really close to you. Most likely, it's somebody that, whose opinion really matters. See, that's the power of the snake's voice. It can happen directly. The snake's voice can come into our life and say, hey, tuck, you know, suck in your belly. Hey, dress this way to attract men. Hey, maybe from your dad, you're not going to amount to anything. Why don't you work harder? But it can also come in indirectly, like in this story, where the snake's voice can kind of just get you to make a few compromises to the point where you've made so many compromises, you're like, I don't like who I've become. But, I, but, but in the midst of their failure, God looks at them, and God, God's response is in anger or disappointment or, or sadness. Maybe God's feeling all of those things in a way that only God can. But God looks at them and says, 
Who was it that told you to feel that way? Where did that start? That's how God responds, and and God holds them accountable. You can read it for yourself. There's going to be trouble in life. There's childbirth and working in the fields and um, you know, the snake is going to have to crawl on its belly. They're all, there's, there's accountability. There's consequences for what happens. But, but ultimately, here's what happens at the end of the story. It's, it's in verse 21 and 22. It says this, that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And it goes on and says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground, from which he had been taken. So once again, we see God respond in two ways. There are consequences for their choices, absolutely. So they're going to be banished from the garden. That sucks. You know, like that's just, that's the consequences. But first, before God says, you can't be in the garden anymore, God deals with their shame. He clothes them. They're going to have to leave, but he gives them the ability to be comfortable with who they are, he closed. It's like God becomes this parent who just wants to pick them up, wrap his arms around them, and make them feel safe again. And say, I want to, I want to. Clothing throughout the rest of the Bible becomes this metaphor for identity. This idea that you can have a new identity, that the way in which you look at yourself, the way in which you feel about yourself, can, can, uh, can meet, God, God can give us this new identity. In fact, there's this really beautiful passage, and I want to end with this. It's out of Isaiah. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that talk about God giving us new clothes, many in the New Testament. There's this one in Isaiah that I think is beautiful, and it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself out, like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with uh, with her jewels, Isaiah 61.10. This is the idea that God comes around us and says, I'm going to dress you up and make you feel the way I was cr- you were created to feel as a bride, as a bridegroom, as a priest, as holy and set apart. The type of thing that gathers people's gaze is beautiful. He says, that's who I see you as, and I want you to see yourself the way that I see you. Friends, I want to talk to you just for a second. If your story is anything like mine, and maybe it's not, there was probably some point in your life, many, many points maybe, where you stopped thinking you were worth it, and you began to question it, and you, you kind of looked at yourself, you recognized your nakedness, that shame of like not liking what you see. And I want you to know that that's not how God sees you. And God wants nothing more than for you to see you the way that God sees you. And to do that is hard work. It, it involves going back and asking hard questions, um, going back to, into your story. And this is something that, you know, I'd encourage you. We, we have an entire fund set aside to help you sit down with somebody, a professional counselor, therapist of your choosing. We don't even, you know, we can offer recommendations, but you don't have to go see a specific one or one at our church. You can just go see, and we'll help you get started. We'll, we'll cover the first couple of sessions. No, you know, no, no questions asked. Fill out a form and we'll, we'll provide that for you. And that's the type of work, one of the things that a counselor is really good for. But also, sometimes we can do this with a friend, with a 
mentor, with somebody who cares about us. We can just have honest conversations about like, why do I think about myself the way that I do? I know that I've messed up, but that doesn't have to define who I am, especially in Jesus, who makes all things new. So I leave you with this thought. God sees you, God knows what you've done, and God's first response is to wrap us up, to pick us up, to love us. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and as we wrestle with our own fall, you've told us that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, and some of us have shame because of what we've done. Others of us, Lord, have shame and embarrassment and fear because of what's been done to us. And you promised to heal us of both. We know it's not easy. We know it doesn't happen overnight. We know it requires asking hard questions. But this is something that is nothing new. The struggle goes back all the way to the primitive, ancient story of Genesis. And it's as relevant today as it is now. So Lord, give us what you gave them. Clothe us. Help us to have a new identity. Show us you care. In your name we pray. Amen.